Before we jump into today's show, I simply must tell you about Fangoria the magazine. You know it, you love it, and this new iteration of the magazine is the best yet. Does it profile the best in modern genre? Check. How about deep dives into past horror favorites? Yep. Surely they still have some stomach-churning, gory makeup effect images scattered throughout as well, right? You bet they do, and all in a collectible, high-quality, printed format that is delivered right to your door four times a year. None of the articles featured in Fangoria can be found online. All that wonderful nerdery can only be found in the actual, physical magazine, so make sure to pick yourself up a yearly subscription. To do that, go to Fangoria.com, and because you're a listener of this very show, you can get a whopping 25% off your annual subscription when you enter in the promo code KINGCAST at checkout. Now, with all of that said, on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Advice for a dead body. Sometimes that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the King Cast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today, we have an especially interesting episode where we'll be sitting down and discussing all things King with Mick Garris. Not only is Mick one of King's most frequent and trusted collaborators, he's also kind of the glue that holds the horror filmmaking community together. As a writer and director, Mick has worked on everything from Amazing Stories to Masters of Horror. King fans will surely know him best from his work on the miniseries adaptations of The Stand, The Shining, and Desperation, as well as Sleepwalkers, Riding the Bullet, Quicksilver Highway. Uh, he also is the host of Postmortem with Mick Garris, a podcast that has him delving deep into the horror filmmaking community with some of the true blue legends in the industry, most recently with another King alum, Frank Darabont. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mick Garris to the KingCast stage. How's it going, Mick? Great, Eric. Scott, thank you for having me. Look forward to uh, it. Uh, we're, we're delighted to have you here. We basically have no choice. We have to have you on this show. <laughs> yeah. you know, we we want to have you on the show. I'm the only one who had a choice, right? For, <laughs> You're <yes>. right. <laughs> That's yeah. correct. But from there the would have been an empty was... void in our in our lives if you'd said no when we asked you to come on the show. <laughs> and I'm not even on the Fangoria network anymore. But I know, the... right? Yeah, the, you, we can't even force you to uh, uh, to do that through uh, through corporate channels now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we ever have to stop, start compelling guests to do things through some sort of contractual obligation, we are in big trouble. <laughs> then we'll, it's have to, we'll, we'll have to tap out at that point, I think. Time to call it quits at that point, yeah. Yeah. But as Eric yeah. pointed out, you're a huge part of, of King's uh, body work on, on film and television, and I think we're both very excited to dig into the many, many, many projects you've, <laughs> you've done with King over the years. I've been very, very lucky to be able to work with uh, him and become a friend. And, uh, you know, I think the world of the guy creatively, but also personally. So there is no greater joy than being able to work on a project with Stephen King himself. Oh, I can only I'd imagine. Like to, I, yeah, I, I want to be like, yeah, totally. But I have no idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. it must it must be good. You've, you know, for as often as you've worked together and, you know, that certainly speaks volumes about your your friendship as well. Well, he's a really good guy as, as well as being, you know, brilliant as, as everyone who listens to your podcast knows. Uh, and nobody knows better than you and me. 
Mick, we we've met a couple of times in the past. I'm sure. I don't know if you remember, but I we we met once at a a screening, an agency screening of Cabin Fever uh, that oh, Eli yeah. Roth put on. And, back at uh, and I'll, way back, yeah, yeah. I'll always remember that because I was there with my buddy Aaron, and uh, Aaron ended up sitting between me and John Landis at that <laughs> yeah. screening. And, and John Landis who invited me. He's the one who invited me. Oh, really? <laughs> so you yeah. must have been like right on the other side. I must, uh, but. Have been, uh, yeah. Aaron will always remember that fondly because, you know, he's American Werewolf is one of his all time favorite movies. So he was already geeking out that he was watching a horror movie sitting next to John Landis. And then, and then as that was going on, apparently Landis kept like grabbing him during all the scary parts. And like, oh my God, like, like she, he was a teenage girl on a date. You know? That's and uh, John, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was it. But I remember talking to you and meeting you. And I think Cynthia, was she there with you? I, I, th- I think I met her there. Uh, probably it, it, not at that screening, but. Um, uh, it but, must have been something yeah. else. Yeah. But I remember you. I think you told me that that uh, King had written her into a book. Was it one of the Dark Tower books? Like got, she got. No, it was from it was from a Buick Eight. Where from he a actually, Buick Eight. That's right. He not only uses the name Cynthia, but she's Cynthia Garris, and he describes her green eyes and a bracelet, a necklace that she used to wear. So she was just floating on clouds for a long time after having read that. And then, you know, he's written in characters named Cynthia, like in Desperation. There's a character named Cynthia, and it's like she takes it very, very fondly and is absolutely sure that it's it's for her. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm sure it is. <laughs> oh, it must be. Yeah, it, it's uh, that's like the ultimate, right? Can you can you imagine? I mean, obviously you can because you like at the very least married into it, and you know you've worked <laughs> you, you worked with with uh, uh, Steve. I, I feel weird calling him Steve, but everybody says call him Steve, and and well, I don't know. If, I feel if, like I have to earn that right. But um, if you know him and you work with him, you know him as Steve. It's hard to think of him in the formal sense. Right. Uh, Stephen would connote. <laughs> I always, I always call them. I do this with all famous people that I don't know. It's just call them by their last name. You know, mm. that seems That's a more. Safe it, way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just seems less familiar. You know, I always get, I don't know. It always weirds me out when people use like familiar terms for like ultra famous people. You know, oh, their I first can names guarantee you I never called him Steve when I first met him. <laughs> Yo, Stevie baby, how's it going? <laughs> yeah. Between him and Spielberg, Spielberg was my first boss as a screenwriter and second boss as a director, but he was always Steven and King was always Steve. Steven was also Unka Steve, like in the Donald Duck comics. Uh, <laughs> I always referred to him as Unka Steve and then uh, King is Steve. Well, that's that's really fascinating because there's a whole. I, I interviewed the Duffer Brothers a while back for uh, mm. for another publication, and that interview ended up within three minutes. Went from any pretense I had of like trying to find out about the new Stranger Things season or whatever the hell I was supposed to talk about. I think it was their Emmy push um, that instantly devolved into us talking about the two Steves. And it was Steven (laughs) King and Steven Spielberg. And for most of us who grew up, you know, watching those, you know, the movies based on King's work or reading his books and then watching Spielberg stuff like our, you know, our development is like 
instructed by these these two men and and you've worked with both of these guys well, you know you're in a very enviable position to have not only been inspired but like to have been inspired creatively directly with with those two and even worked on a project with both of them you know uh, i i wrote a screenplay for a four-hour version of the talisman that i was going to direct mm. and that was spielberg producing and right. so uh, there's a great story about that where Steve was being driven, King was being driven in a limo to the Universal lot to meet with Spielberg and me. And on the way over, they picked me up. And so we're at the gate going into Universal Studios and King says to me, boy, what if all those people outside knew that we were going to see Steven Spielberg? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, what if all those people outside knew that I was sitting with Stephen King on my way yeah. to Stephen Spielberg? <laughs> so, right. They're not worried about your where you're going, King. They, no. They're worried about you being there. They're going <laughs> to exactly. swarm that thing like the Beatles if they find out. Yeah. It, it, I, at what point was it? Was this was this uh, like early on in your career was, or was this like? After The Stand and The Shining, but... Uh, not long after it had to actually it was between the stand and the shining interesting yeah yeah i'm fascinated there's that's a project that spielberg's been trying to get off the ground for decades i keep hearing about a movie or two movies or a series and the last thing i heard was recently that it was going to be a series and uh, i've been hearing it for so long and you'll believe it when you see it (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, one of my favorite scripts I've ever written was the script for The Talisman. And and it breaks my heart that uh, it never got made under those circumstances. But it was before CGI was less expensive than practical effects. And, mm-hmm. and it would have been outrageously expensive. First of all, just to pay for King and Spielberg on top of everything else is right. the biggest cost of that show. But um, it, it was heartbreaking for it not to go forward. I always figured that maybe one of the roadblocks on getting the talisman made was like the violence with children aspect of it. You know, that never came up in our discussions really work or anything. You know, I, I did a completed screenplay, a couple of drafts and, um, the only thing that came up was money and how impossible it would be to make because, you know, it's, it's King and Straub's, um, Lord of the Rings in a way. Uh, yeah, for sure. And just to go into the the Badlands and all uh, would have been hugely expensive to do in a convincing way, even for television. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I assume that you you had the Sunlight uh, Gardener home in there, yeah? Because I, I read a oh, few yeah. different. I read a few different attempts at this. I read. Um, Oh, uh, Richard Legravenez wrote a, a screenplay, I think, in the early 90s. Yeah, uh, that was right before mine. I came in right. and they never showed me his draft because it was a feature draft that wasn't going forward. And it was one of his right. first one of his first screenwriting jobs assignments. But uh, no, uh, it, mine was very faithful to the book. Which it should be because that book is so cinematic. It's like, especially, it's like it's built to be a miniseries. You know, the, yeah, that book yeah. more than just about anything else King has written, or King and Straub in this case, has written. Like, it is just such a great, like, point A to point C and everything wrong that can happen in between those two things, yeah. right? So, well, it's, so it's got and, such a great thrust. And philosophically, the further you go away from Stephen King, the more you're likely to go awry. 
you know, once for, you well, for sure. once you really move away. I mean, I I went far away in writing the bullet, but it was a thirty page short story that <laughs> I turned into something very personal, and and he really liked the script and the movie. But um, if you're doing The Stand or The Shining or Bag of Bones or Desperation, the further you get away, you know, movies and books are not the same thing. Movies are external and books are internal. But making a movie that feels complete based on a very cinematic book, you're really foolish to move far away from the heart of that book. While we're on the topic of The Talisman and Steven Spielberg and King, I want to float this fan theory by you and see what you think. Okay. Um, so we've talked quite a bit about Spielberg on this show. I, I forget why it came up in this whatever conversation we were having, but in the process of talking about Spielberg's talent and, and his wheelhouse and his medium versus King's, I came to believe that essentially Steven Spielberg is the twinner of Stephen King. <laughs> you know, one of them's kind of dark, you know, one of them's kind of lighter. But they're both like operating with the same kind of powers, just in different worlds. Do you think this Absolutely. holds water? I think it does to a degree. Uh, I think they very much come from blue collar households, broken home sort of situation. Very similar to my own, in fact, uh, although mine was in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles and King's was in Maine and, and Spielberg's was in Phoenix. The only fault I can find with that is Spielberg once told me, I have ideas that make David Cronenberg's seem like Disney movies, but I can't make them because of who I am. And my thought was, gee, Stephen, you can make them because of who you are, uh, but he wouldn't be who he was for very long. Right. But the expectations of an Amblin movie, a Steven Spielberg movie, that brand kind of roped him. Usually, you work in the horror genre, you're in horror jail. You never get out of there. Well, he's mm -hmm. in a much bigger wheelhouse and a much more mainstream place, but it was very difficult for him to break out of it because expectations on a film by Steven Spielberg would be something more family-friendly and, and filled with awe and inspiration. But but the two of them are very, very creatively similar, and they come from very similar roots. And I would love to see Spielberg tackle a King novel. Uh, right. I think he would, he would sure. kill it. I think he'd kill it. Well, and at this point in his career, I think, would be a really great time for him to do it because he has proven his diversity so outrageously over the last 30, 40 years. Well, Taking it's, it's, uh, any titles that you've already made off the table and the talisman off the table, what other King title would you like to see him paired with? Well, almost everything has been made or is being made. I would love sure. to see Steven Spielberg's The Shining. I would love to see that movie. You know, I would love to see what he would have done with Bag of Bones. You know, I, mm, yeah. I, don't, I don't hold them precious. I mean, they're all very important to me. Everything I've done is, is like my child because you put everything of your heart and soul into your work if mm -hmm. you really care. And if you don't, it shows. Um, so many things have been done repeatedly, whether it's Carrie or or The Shining, or The Stand, or any number of things. So, um, you know, that would be the one I'd love to see him do. And I know he would just kill it. Yeah. Right. 
I like when I love it when Spielberg goes a little dark. Like Me War too. of the Worlds. War yeah. of the World. I love War of the Worlds so much. Yeah. Oh my God. No, um, I think Steven is, is, has so many areas of his expertise that have been untapped for the uh, greater public. And I, I'd love to see him really break loose with something, some really scary shit. Yeah. What's scarier than Jaws? For sure. Well, and one of, you know, he's only credited with, I think, three screenplay credits. It's an AI mm-hmm. Um, Close Encounters and Poltergeist, which Poltergeist. Stra- oddly enough, Poltergeist, my understanding is he approached King to to mm-hmm. write that script and King turned yep. him down. Yeah. Uh, and that's fascinating in and of, I wouldn't give up Poltergeist, you know, the end result that we got, you know, for the world, but. No, and I was uh, on the set when it was being made. I was doing publicity on that movie. That and that is that's where I met Toby Hooper. Yeah. To, Toby was, was a, a very sweet guy. Like I met him oh. Uh, here and because we both were in Austin and we run into each other at film festivals, I met him at a screening. Uh, but of it was a double feature of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Nightmare on Elm Street that was held wow. at the Austin Film Festival with wow. Toby introducing Chainsaw and Wes Craven introducing Nightmare on Elm Street. That's and awesome. and it was like the most mind blowing night for a you know a movie nerd like like me, especially genre <laughs> nerd. And you know I must have been sixteen at this point, and I went and I saw saw them both and. And they were just like hanging out, you know, I think, you know, this is where you, when you could still smoke inside and in certain places right. and they'd kind of made like the, put the screening up in like this makeshift convention center thing. And Toby Hooper was just smoking a cigar and holding court, you know, and it was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It was, it was just the, uh, my cigar. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I got my yeah, cigar so. and my Dr. Pepper and I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the epitome of, of old, old school Austin right there. Like he's, but Austin, there, there. Austin doesn't have that identity much anymore. Now it's way younger. It's more hipstery, less, you know, kind Definitely. of gruff country. You know, southern. Well, it's a a blue pool in a red state. Yeah, yes. that's true. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll take we'll take the positives too. Um, exactly. But yeah, no, that that's yeah. fascinating. Uh, but I think going back to to the, what I was saying is that, um you know spielberg when he you know, obviously he has it in him if he was able to write poltergeist which is definitely something that doesn't pull punches you know and it's like not afraid to you know to terrify its audience which is you know something also i also love about temple of doom you know it's not afraid you know it's not afraid to scare kids uh you know but my understanding with temple of doom is that he uh, the backlash that he got from critics groups and parents groups parent you know children's rights groups about how dark it was i it was something he took very much to heart. You know, that was something that uh, I interviewed uh, Harrison Ford once and, and I brought up how much I love Temple of Doom and he was saying that he liked it a lot too and thought it got a bum rap, but he was also saying that he that's why he thinks Spielberg kind of shied away from it. Well, it wasn't a critical reception thing so much as it was, you know, this kind of backlash from parents groups and saying that he was hurting kids and like he's he's such a, that's a very sensitive area for him you know wow that, that makes me feel sad. very protective kids well yeah. he's also the parent of several children and, <laughs> yes <laughs> but but it, it makes me sad where anybody feels they are responsible to a certain segment of the populace you know if you're making a movie for a specific audience of course you want to keep that in mind but if the audience controls you and and those expectations limit you in that way, that's that's really sad, especially for somebody who's just capable of making whatever he wants to make. 
I wish that he would loop back around and actually make night skies after all this time. We'll see. Have you, He's him, got wouldn't time that be left. cool? He's yeah. got yeah. time left, yeah. He could make that quick and dirty, you know, probably on a reasonable budget. You I'm know. Sure he could. Oh man, it would be I just I love I love Spielberg in alien mode and I particularly like Spielberg in like angry yeah. alien mode. It's, <laughs> it's really red. I want to see that part. Yeah. Please, more of that. Well, I, I I suppose before we get any further into your career, we should take a moment to pause and start at the beginning with your your Stephen King origin story. I think you're going to be the only guest who's ever been on the show that's like, well, I read a book and liked it, and then I made half a dozen of his movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm I'm like any other fan. You know, the first book I read was not Carrie. But I saw Carrie the movie before I read the book. Hmm. And before I read any of his books, and I think that's the case with most people, um, mm-hmm. but I'm old enough to have seen it in the movie theater when it was originally released in, what, 1976, I think, and fell in love with it. And then Salem's Lot came out, and every book from Salem's Lot on, I bought it when it was new and consumed it immediately because this was a voice that resonated with me, especially in the world of horror. You know, Richard Matheson had brought horror home from the Carpathians. You know, he and and a few other people at the time were writing about horror that's set in your neighborhood rather than in the, uh, the wilds of Eastern Europe. And King did it even more personally to me. You know, it was a very blue collar world that he lived in and, and he wrote about. And so the movie of Carrie blew my mind. It was great. I loved it. I was a genre fan before and after, and it really ticked all of the boxes in what I wanted to see in a movie. And uh, that didn't exclude the uh, girl's gym. But uh, uh, (laughs) after that, I read Salem's Lot and saw what a great novelist he was. And uh, so I was hooked on, on those. Then my first opportunity to to work on a King movie was not based on a book. It was Sleepwalkers, which was an original screenplay. My agent had set up a meeting at Columbia. They wanted to meet with me. We had a great meeting. Um, King had director approval, and I had not gone to that stage yet. But everybody said, you know, we want you. We have another favor we have to do for another agent who has a client that wants to meet with us. So as I was waiting to get the call to come to another meeting. I didn't hear from anybody. They hired that favor. And it was another director who started really changing the script and rewriting it himself, rewriting it. (laughs) And if you have a script by Stephen King, especially if it's an original screenplay, not based on the book, and you can't put Stephen King's name in the title, Stephen King's Sleepwalkers, well, it was, but now it's so-and-so director's Sleepwalkers. Um, Nobody was on the same page as the director, and they ended up letting him go. Uh, I got a call to come in and have lunch and talk. And what I didn't know was at the end of the conversation, they were putting me into my production office and I started work that day on pre-production. So that was my introduction to the world of Stephen King. You know, what were those early conversations with you and him like? Were you were you nervous around him? Were you were, Well, they were only on the phone because he was in Maine and I was in Los Angeles. 
Okay. So all of our conversation, the the main one of the main reasons that I was hired was because I'm also a screenwriter, and that I could kind of redo what this other uh, filmmaker had undone that King had done. And I could also address some of the notes the studio had. But with King, you know, yes, I was completely intimidated by him until we talked. And then it was like, I'm Steve. And, you know, he's very much a, a, a tennis shoes and busted out knees in your Levi's kind of guy. He made that very clear that he knows the difference between books and movies. And this was an original screenplay. He was proud of it, but it wasn't the same kind of thing as writing a book. I think it was with The Stand that he developed a respect for screenwriting equal to the respect he had for novel writing. And uh, he actually said that to me during the course of making The Stand. And you could tell it by reading the screenplay. But um, he wasn't intimidating at all. He was very encouraging and very much, you know, I was there. I made him comfortable because I let him know I was there to fulfill the vision that he had. And I would ask him questions. And when the studio would come with notes, which often is the case, you can either talk them out of them or make them believe that you're addressing them your way (laughs) that would make Mm. them think that it was their way. I would say the studio is interested in this element here. I can attack it and send you pages and you tell me what you think. And he said, no, no, let me give it a try. And then the next day there'd be six new pages in the fax machine (laughs) waiting for me when I came in in the morning. And they were great. We had a great working relationship. And then I suggested and i wrote the scene where you see the sleepwalkers making love in front of the mirror revealing them in their monster forms and he embraced it he loved it it felt very in fact i remember it was in fangoria one of the uh, a review i think it was in fangoria uh saying probably the most king scene of all is when the mother and (laughs) yeah well that's a good thing to hear you know, oh man, I I'd be floating that. on cloud nine, man. It, Somebody well, mistake something I, I'd written for for, for King. The apprentice me, has come, the master. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, at least I wore the wizard's robe for a moment. We uh, we revisited Sleepwalkers for for the for the show, and uh, it had been a long time since I'd seen it. And I just I got to tell you how appreciative I am of how fucking batshit insane that movie is, <laughs> and and how. Yeah. Like, you know, cause I, I think it must've been over a decade since I've watched it. And, uh, and, and I remember at the time, you know, there's, I think I was a little too young to kind of understand all the incest stuff and it just like weirded <laughs> me out in like, it was off putting and, and all that. And, and I, you know, I liked it then, but like, I went from like, oh yeah, I like sleepwalkers to like watching it going like I could watch this every week. <laughs> we did embrace the crazy and it was interesting because there's never been a studio horror film like it. And in fact, when I met with the head of the studio, Frank Price, he said, there will never be a movie where a boy fucks his mother as long as I'm head of the studio. (laughs) Well, halfway through through production, he was fired and replaced by Mark Canton. Mark Canton (laughs) ran the studio. Mark Canton ended up recently being one of the producers on my movie Nightmare Cinema. But uh, when we finished the movie and screened it for him in the studio brass, 
he came out of the screen and go, oh, oh, it's that kind of movie. But um, he didn't keep us from putting it out with a boy fucking his mother. (laughs) Well, I I have a a theory and maybe maybe you can shed some light on this that that Sleepwalkers, somebody, whether it was King or somebody like looked at Psycho 4 and uh you know because mm-hmm. i i really liked psycho 4 and and was like hey that here's a complicated story about a a young guy and and his mother <laughs> you know yeah. this guy could handle handle this this project well that was the movie that uh he saw because he had to approve the director and they right. sent him psycho 4 and he said it's so much better than i would have expected from anything with a four in the title <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, yeah, it's definitely two chapters of my motherfucker trilogy. Just don't tell my mom. <laughs> <laughs> you're, de- you're dead on, or, or he's dead on about that, you know, <laughs> number four in a series thing, because I had never seen, in fact, I had at the time seen none of the Psycho sequels when we had that conversation. And really? Eric, and Eric talked me into watching uh, Psycho 4, and I, I loved it. I oh, was, thank I, you. I, I just I, watched I, it for the first time in many years the other night. And I'm I'm really proud of that movie. It really could have been disastrous, but we really yeah. we were inspired and and it really it was a great script from Joe Stefano, who'd written the script for the original Psycho and Tony Perkins and all and and just there was a lot of passion put into that little four week shoot that we did. Uh, paid off. Yeah, it's Thank a great, it's a great cast. I, I'm such a, like, I, I, you know, of course I, I knew Tony Perkins's work from psycho and, you know, and then what was it? I saw, I saw a movie. Is it called the tin star that he's, in? I think it's called the tin star that, oh, that, yeah. that he's in. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was just blown away again. Then I saw another movie called the matchmaker that he was in. Yeah. Um, with uh, Shirley MacLaine and I was like, this, this is, this dude's incredible. And then pretty poison. Like you start discovering yeah. his, I you love know, uh, the last of Sheila. It's like, yeah, it's like you start discovering all of his non psycho stuff and you realize just like how amazing of an actor that guy was. And he co-wrote the last of Sheila, which is a wonderful right. whodunit. He wrote with Stephen Sondheim. That movie yeah. is so good. It that was when Knives Out came out. That was like all the excuse I needed to be going around telling people like, watch yeah. Last of she- Sheila, track that. Yeah. <laughs> Diane Cannon is so great in it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The whole thing is, and it's so stylish. It's great. You know, it's a great thing just to look at. Even if the plot were terrible or something, you'd be like, yeah. damn, but this is a pretty movie. I'll tell you what. It's so engaging. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see. Eric, how do you want to approach this? We have a lot of um, topics to discuss, with Mr. Oh Gage. God, there's so much. Uh, before We're already we already half direct, hour in, what do you know? I know. <laughs> I, I do want to bring up since it's now in the news uh, again, and this is something that that's kind of blown up. And it's interesting to talk to you about it now because I was in the generation that Hocus Pocus was kind of a big deal to my generation. Yeah, right. I was a little bit old, a little bit like I think I when that came out, that was like ninety two, ninety three. Yeah, it was ninety three. 93. So, you know, I was, I was in the, the early teenage years at that point. So it was, it was like slightly under my, you know, slightly older for the demographic, but like, I just, you know, I liked spooky things and I liked anything that was Halloween adjacent. And that is more than Halloween adjacent, you know, it is uh, pretty dead on Halloween centric. And so I remember liking it then, but like, I, 
I've only realized in the last few years just like how big of an impact that film ended up having on kids who saw it, you know, when it came out and now it's getting a sequel. So, well, what's weird about it is that it was not particularly successful when it came out. I think it grossed something like $39 million and the movie cost close to 40. But every year since then, it's gone up and up and up and up and up. And they've been talking about a sequel for years. Now they're finally doing it. Um, and it has become by far, uh, with all due respect to John Carpenter, it's become the most popular Halloween movie ever. And, <laughs> you know, on Halloween, during the month of, of October, the Freeform Network shows it every day of the month. And on Halloween day, they just rerun the movie over and over and over for 24 hours. And it, you can't imagine the feeling of going out to a friend's house for Halloween and have all the trick-or-treaters come dressed as the Sanderson sisters. Right. I mean, this <laughs> is pretty gratifying. And and there's even more stuff in the works than just the sequel. And it's pretty uh, amazing to have been a part of, you know, one sp- spoke in the wheel of what has become something that is so adored and thought about and and talked about and viewed and and people are passionate about it but as you say particularly when they were kids at the time when it came out yeah well and what's interesting also is is i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that for the last i don't know 4 or 5 years that hocus pocus has been kind of the centerpiece for all the disney parks halloween celebrations because they like they have a parade and it's you know it's it's run by the bet midler character essentially it's just everything's there and they you know they sing the the song and like it's it's a the boo to you i think is what they call the the halloween event at mickey's not so scary halloween right like i i can only imagine that because there's a hundred thousand you know people at least pre-pandemic there was a hundred thousand people a day going into those those parks and you know for for a month of october that's a hundred thousand you know kids that are you know every every couple of days that are like being introduced to this it's kind of one of the reasons why and and this is a really weird tangent and we can cut it right off of the knees if we need to um but as a disney parks fan like they, they had a ride at disney world called the great movie ride which uh, it's it's no longer there, but it was amazing because it was this collaboration with uh, Turner Classic Movies, and it was essentially a themed ride that went through the history of cinema from like giant, you'd go through, there'd be like an alien section where the animatronic Ooh. Ripley and there'd be, you know, uh, Casablanca and Singing in the Rain and, and Wizard awesome. of Oz. And it, it was like, you know, it was great. And uh, they re- they replaced it with some like Mickey ride. You know, now it's a, just like a Mickey and Minnie animated ride and it yeah. and the ride's fun but one of the things that i love so much about that that turner classic movies ride was that like i took my nephews on it when they were like in you know pre 10 years old and they wanted to watch singing in the rain afterwards and uh wow. that isn't there anymore now it's just kids going i like you know i like mickey mouse because or whatever yeah. um uh but like the my point being that uh i have to imagine that the hocus pocus being the focus of that has something to do with the popularity, the resurgent popularity. It is, it is that, but it's really there because of the popularity of the film, which, sure. you know, it was Disney channel first started running it and then ABC would run it every Halloween and uh, all of the, right. all of the networks owned by Disney and, and the every year 
of the last 20 years, it's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. It's much more popular now than it's ever been before. And I think that led to them doing the, the uh, boo to you, um, mm. the live show, which isn't in the West Coast Park yet, but um, we'll see what happens there. But it, it's amazing how resilient it is. And I'm so glad because there was talk of a reboot with a young cast playing the Sanderson sisters and the mm -hmm. like. And I'm so glad it's a sequel that has the actual original cast. It's really hard to beat the three of them. And now it's at a time where they can really go all out with it. For sure. I would like to use up my question about a non-Stephen King thing in talking about Tales from the Crypt for a moment. Sure. Um, you directed one of what is probably like one of my top five Oh wow! Episodes, which is a uh, whirlpool uh, with uh, with oh Rita Rudner and Rita Rudner and Richard, Richard Lewis. Lewis. Yeah. Oh my God, I love that episode. The time well, loop thank thing. You. It is. Do you beat Groundhog Day to the punch in terms of a time loop, or was that right maybe, after? Maybe, maybe. You know, the the script was there, and the main thing I brought to it was. I asked them to set it in the 50s because it was not a period piece originally. And I had them trade genders on the leading characters. Originally, uh, Richard Lewis was uh, the male character, was the editor, and the cartoonist was the female character, and we swapped them around. And, oh, that's uh, cool. and I also said, well, let's put this in the in the EC offices and let's set it in the 1950s when these comics were actually being mm. made. And to their credit, they embraced that. And I also thought, you know, comedians often make really good actors. I don't know why, but there's a long mm -hmm. history of it, whether it was, you know, Mickey Rooney or, uh, uh, you know, Jackie Gleason from, you know, way back when getting Rita Rudner and, and Richard Lewis, in totally unexpected roles, neither of whom were real horror fans, by the way, but they really got it. And I just think it helped everybody on the set and in the audience have a really good time with a very clever story. And, and, and I just love being able to do a period piece set in the fifties, just trade the genders was a really important part of making that story work. I think. Right. Yeah, that's really cool. Also, of you, course, they, uh, it took, they, they were shot in like four days or something uh, <laughs> really, really short. But I, I knew uh, the producer, Gil Adler, we'd been friends. I introduced him to people like Toby Hooper and Tommy McLaughlin back in the days of um, Freddy's Nightmares, where Toby did the first one, I did the second one, Tommy did the third one. And so then Gil and his partner, Alan took over producing on Tales from the Crypt when they started to really trim the budgets down. And so that's how I ended up doing an episode. Do mm. you know what the exact holdup is on getting Crypt re-released? There's a lot of rights issues. I don't know what they are, who owns the books. Uh, right. It's still Warner Brothers. Is it Joel Silver? Is it, you know, is it Bob Zemeckis? Or is it somebody else entirely? You know, Dark Castle used to be owned by Zemeckis and Silver, and it was sold to another company. So I don't know who owns the rights, and I think that's the holdup. That's basically the story I've always heard. There's, yeah. you know, there's red tape in terms of ownership, and yet blah, 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 blah. And I was, when HBO Max first got announced, I was like, oh my God, please have Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. Knowing full well that was like a pipe dream. But, well, uh, 
let's move on to greener pastures. You know, <laughs> Tales from the Crypt had its day once as a as an amicus movie, and then for years for HBO. Let's do new anthologies. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, you. Yeah, you've been shepherding that. You know, even for television with Masters of Horror, and yeah. and it's uh, and then your most like recent output that that uh, Nightmare uh, Cinema that, that was an anthology as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Why why do you think this is something I've talked about on the show before? Is I love anthology movies, but typically when you're seeing an anthology movie, it's it's not being given the big budget, you know, prestige tre- treatment. Well, and I'm they wondering. Don't- they don't have a very successful history. Um, yeah. There, there have been exceptions, but, you know, nobody is looking for an anthology movie. Uh, you know, ours was done on a very, the, the lowest budget I've ever worked uh, under in my entire career. But you wouldn't know that because the people who did it were passionate about it. We got these really great directors to tell stories they wanted to tell without any uh-huh. interference. And so no time, no money, but, no bossing you around either. So, um, but, <laughs> bonus, but it is difficult to, to do that. And, you know, we're trying to put together a, a sequel to that. And then I'm working on another anthology series I'm creating with Clive Barker. Um, so it's a format I love because I love a new story every time out and yeah, totally. stylistically different, you know, in the case of tales from the crypt, stylistically they were mostly the same they were the boobs and blood and gory joke punchline stories and that was great but after seven seasons it gets a little bit it's hard not for the snake to not eat its own tail sure Uh, right but i love the format the way that you know i learned from amazing stories that was my first job as a writer and second job as a director and what Stephen did was bring in great directors and let them do it their way. So every show was really different from every other show. It did not have the same personality each week like Tales from the Crypt, for the most part, did. Notable exceptions like Friedkin and some other things like that. But, um, you know, I was really influenced by what Steven did with amazing stories, but it's also why the show did not succeed because if you're watching a weekly TV show on broadcast TV every week, you want some sense of familiarity with it. And in a, in an anthology show, you don't have continuing characters. So twilight zone was stylistically the same every week and they were morality tales, things like that. But amazing stories to its credit was new every time out, but it's also what doomed it. And my last note about Tales from the Crypt is that your episode, and I just discovered this today, I had no idea, your episode immediately preceded the episode that is my pick for like the scariest episode that the series ever produced. Which which one? Which was William Malone's Only Uh Skinny. Fucking yeah. terrifying that episode. Yep, Bill is one of my closest friends, and uh, he was a guy I had to have on Masters of Horror. And uh, I brought him in when I was producing the others for Spielberg. And I just think he's a terrific director and a guy who hasn't gotten his due, uh, no. and, and has not necessarily been given the right projects that show what he can do. But what he did with House on Haunted Hill was fantastic. 
I know, love that movie so goddamn much. Oh my god, it's so good, and that opening sequence is killer. And, oh, absolutely. You, know, you go back to the original Vincent Price movie, and it may have been shocking in its day, but it's really a long haul for an eighty-five minute movie to sit through mm-hmm. these days. There was a string of those Dark Castle movies, I think, uh, yeah. during the late nineties and House of Wax they, and yeah. House of Wax, yeah. uh, Thirteen Ghosts, I yeah. think, was one of them. Right? They, um, they weren't all as successful as House on Haunted Hill. <laughs> no, well, they weren't as good as House on Haunted Hill either. You know I'm what I mean? Creatively like, successful too. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I do wish we saw more of Malone. I wish we he was behind the camera more, and uh, that was really the only point I wanted to make. There was. I, I love that dude. Me I, too. I just wish, I just wish he were around more. I think he's undervalued. Well, he's working on some stuff now. You know, he used to own Robbie the robot, and it's <laughs> it sold for millions of dollars in an auction a few years ago. But he had not only owned it, but completely restored it to its its magnificence. And uh, he's an amazing collector. He has a lot of the pieces from the original Star Wars and Alien and probably knows more about Alien than anyone else. But the guy is a brilliant guy and a really sweet guy and so talented. And uh, he's always working on something, whether it gets made or not. You know, it's, it's a weird world when it comes to what's getting produced and what isn't these days. But right. um, but he's always working on something new and exciting and and dark and twisted. Well, the next time you talk to him, do do tell him there's a guy in Austin, Texas that just thinks the world of him, <laughs> and yeah. he looks forward to his next project. You got it. So let's move on to um, your king work, Eric. Do you want to you want to start? Which one do you want to? Yeah. Well, we talked a little bit about Sleepwalkers already. I think mm-hmm. that the. Something that that uh, I try to underline to people, uh, especially younger listeners of the podcast, is just how important in terms of keeping Stephen King in like the popular like throne, keeping him at the top of the mountain that the those early 90s miniseries were. So yeah. when it came out, it was a you know, it, it was this you know, thing that everybody was watching. It was like the end of you know, fucking Dallas or something like right. everybody was, was watching that. And the same thing with the stand with, uh, with the like, stand, it was an event. Yeah. The it was, stand it was like a Marvel movie coming out. Yeah. Well, the stand in particular is the highest rated miniseries in history. We had 50 million people a night watching it in North America. That's and incredible it, to think about now. Up each of the four nights. And that's back when, you know, cable was not as big a deal. This is 1994. And uh, cable stations did not get nearly the uh, the ratings that broadcast stations did. And so you could see numbers like that that would be absolutely unthinkable today. But that's another thing like Hocus Pocus that connected with so many people. But the stand did it in its time. You know, right. number one, two, three, and four in the ratings when it came out. And, <laughs> and you know, I had only done things of a very small scale before the stand. So I'm used to having a handful of actors and a handful of locations and a handful of dollars. Um, And in this case, you know, it wasn't a lot of money considering what we made, but we made something based on King's most popular book, even to this day. And everybody watched it and they all watched it as it was airing. And that also is something that's not done 
much these days. Everybody streams it at their whim. But in yeah. those days, uh, there were a lot of people who recorded all four nights and then sat down the following Saturday and watched it from beginning to end. Watched a very long movie. <laughs> yeah, it's very long. And uh, <laughs> so that was great. But that was the first time, you know, Sleepwalkers was the number one movie the opening weekend, and then it dropped off quickly like horror movies often do. But I was able to go to the Chinese theater, and it was sold out, packed. The crowd just went apeshit throughout. So that was great for a one-night experience. But here, suddenly, it's all over the country that everybody's watching it all at the same time in their homes. And literally, I'd be in the supermarket the next day and hear people talking about, man, did you see the stand last night? This and this and this and this. And it was crazy. And that kept up for like a month. And uh, it was a pretty exciting time. So I assume, well, you you cameoed in the new one, and I thought that was a really classy move. Ah, well, you know, I wanted it to be good. You know, I, I like everybody else. I'm a fan, and uh, and Josh is a good guy and dedicated to King, and a real real fan. And uh, I uh, I went up just to visit the set and say hi, and they said uh, you want to be an extra, and I said of course. Yeah, <laughs> director you said, how much are you going to pay me? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, the uh, the answer being zero. <laughs> <laughs> the main point of contention that a lot of people had with the new stand was the, you know, uh, telling altered, it out of order. Yes, right. the altered chronology of it. And I'm wondering if, you know, given that you did just a straight up take, I'm wondering if you have an opinion on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the show. Uh, and I, I love that they weren't slavish to our show or to the book, but, um, it's a quest and I found telling it out of order, you know, you're going with these characters from point A to point Z ultimately. And I think the way King did it in the book and the way he wrote the screenplay for the miniseries, which he wrote entirely himself was the most the most efficient, uh, efficient way to tell that story, but also the most dramatically impactful way is to go on a journey with this cast of characters and have the audience experience what the cast experiences in the order in which they experience it. So for me, that worked, but I also admire that they wanted to do something different. We'd already made right. it one way. So, right. By all means, give them the rope to make it the other way. For sure, yeah, I, I'm I'm totally with you. Like I respect the swing. I don't think it works, um, unfortunately, because but like I appreciate that it, it wasn't just a retread of what we've seen already. I mean, and yeah. to a, a huge extent, uh, I can say the same thing about your take on The Shining. In in that you we, you didn't need to copy kubrick you weren't trying to do that you had you said you know what one thing kubrick didn't do was tell the book the way stephen you know king wrote it and the way he wanted to have it told so let's go ahead and do it that way and, and that was we can, the whole thing can, can exist in, in 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 the world yeah exactly you know the kubrick film is on the shelf in its 4k form whenever you want to see it the stand or the shining that we did is available on DVD, not Blu-ray for some reason. Um, they can coexist. 
Uh, the iconic version is the Kubrick version, and the one that is faithful to the book and whose teleplay was written by the author is the version that we did. And, and he produced it as well as uh, did the screenplay. And I was lucky enough to be his collaborator on that. And, and I'm very, very proud of what we did. And, and for years, he would constantly say it was his favorite adaptation. So, uh, you know, That's- everything you could want to get out of that other than a bunch of cranky Kubrick fans online uh, threatening to kill us because we did something different. You know, it was like, well, you know, it's just the same sort of people who go online uh, on Trump's blog to (laughs) to metaphorically blow him. (laughs) (laughs) Only metaphorically because they can't do it in real life. (laughs) You can cut that (laughs) if you want, but. uh, No, no. Oh, no. We're we're keeping it. We, uh, Uh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We're, we're going to actually we're, turn up the volume on that solution <laughs> too, just just so everybody can hear it. And make sure. To, <laughs> yeah, we'll put a little beat over it so you can dance yeah. to it. <laughs> I we had Stephen Weber on the show once, uh, oh. kind of walking us through all the all the King projects he's been involved with over the years. And I love uh, him. he told uh, he's, no, he's, he's what a uh, what a fucking delight that guy is. Let me tell you. Uh, well, I don't need to tell you. I guess you know. <laughs> you don't. But yeah. uh, he told a really funny story about like being on set during The Shining, and he had become enamored with this passage in the book, this little like stanza of poetry that that King had written into the novel. <laughs> I know and, this uh, story, but tell oh, do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that he was he was just really taken with it and had memorized it. And one day he went up to King while he was like sitting in a director's chair or something, and uh, was like. Uh, Steven, I just got to know, what does this mean? Like, this was, I really love this, this piece of poetry you, you put in here. Uh, but I'm curious about the meaning. And he's just like, um, let's see, uh, vines on the floor, can't <laughs> get up. Yeah, I was probably drunk when I wrote this. Yeah, Deuce's like, you know, the the pattern on on the carpet was like viney, viney. So I was probably just looking around and for something, and I just wrote it. Exactly that way. He was like, but he was supposed to have all the answers. (laughs) He's he's the author, the auteur. (laughs) Well, what's interesting is the difference between the circumstances under which he wrote the book and under which he wrote the screenplay. You know, he was a wet alcoholic at the time he wrote the book. And it was a very personal book about personal responsibility and, you know, fatherhood and, and rage and taking it out on a young boy. Um, but when he wrote the teleplay, he had been a clean alcoholic, a dry alcoholic for some time. And it gave him a totally different perspective uh, when he went back to the book and, and adapted it into screenplay format. It's pretty fascinating to, to read the screenplay uh, and, and read the book because as similar as they are, they're told in a very different language. I have a question about... Something that you guys do in the miniseries is you make Tony essentially Danny himself, right? It's right. He, that's kind of the the influence, or the inference at the end, right? Um, and was that was that something that came from from King, or was that something that came from like your collaboration? Oh about, no, that uh, was you know I the script had been written by the time we started uh, turning it into the actual 
uh, teleplay. That was his, you know, adding the uh, uh, Daniel Anthony Torrance, uh, right. Tony, the little boy who lives in his mouth, uh, making it the future Danny was entirely already developed by the time the screenplay was was delivered. You know, again, it's like an interesting little twist to throw in there. So it's not the same experience for people, especially um, at the end. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, the Kubrick film ends on such a, a dark note yeah. that, you know, this family survives, but you know, at what cost, you know, their trauma, obviously the trauma is going to stay with them for, for forever. And it's, it's not, it's not an optimistic ending, even though, you know, the quote unquote good guys escape uh, with their lives. Right. Um, but you know, the miniseries has a little bit of closure, with um with Jack Torrance, you know where you know the, he sees him at the at the graduation and all yeah, that. So, I mean the, it's also the difference between Kubrick as a filmmaker and King as an author is that Kubrick is very cold and clinical, uh, and King is very warm and human, and the humanity of Stephen King, especially the dry alcoholic Stephen King, <clears throat> is such that you know he'll bring you to tears. Uh, with the actor who played Tony, um, older Danny, he was a wonderful young actor. And, you know, he was just, you know, I, I've never cried on camera. I'm a little nervous about that. I don't know if I can do that. And I said, well, you know, let's get personal. You know, is there something that's happened to you or your parents or something that has ever really given you pain? And this kid had had a very nice life and hadn't really <laughs> experienced any really tough stuff. And he said, well, you know. So you slapped him? <clears throat> yes. <laughs> you know, my mom works really hard and stuff. But uh, and and so I, I feel for her uh, and all. And it's like, you know, well, I mean, deep pain, something that's happened to you. Have you ever suffered a loss? And just a few years ago, I had lost my younger brother. And, you know, it wasn't something that uh, is a topic of conversation to bring up out of the blue, but it was something that, you know, was very personally painful to me. And it was time to share that experience with him. And I'm telling him the story. And he started to water up. His eyes were filling with tears. And he said before, you know, before I finished, he said, can we roll now? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so that's, that's how he got to where he got. And, you know, true art, even if it's popular art or popular culture like TV and movies, comes from a real place. <clears throat> and King connects with those real places that we all have, even if we subsume them, if we push them down beneath the surface, they're still alive. And King helps put us in touch with those places. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, I feel like we kind of skipped over the stand a little bit. Like, I'd love to go back just, just for a little bit more, because I have a feeling a lot of the our listeners are going to want, are going to be like screaming at us going, wait a minute. You just, you talked about the stand for like three minutes. You talked about Hocus Pocus for 10. What the hell are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah. um, stand, I've heard of it. I think I've seen it once. Or two. He, but I, I, I want to just kind of get an idea of what the gravity of doing a project this complex was because yeah. 
like maybe next to the dark tower series, it is the most complex thing that King has written by far by in terms of, you know, size of the, the cast. And they're not, it it is a true ensemble. It's not like the talisman that has a couple of, you know, a central character that has some supporting characters. And then a lot of people that they meet along the way, like this is an, like a true ensemble of, you know, what half a dozen main characters, at least it's an, you know, whose story you're following. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it, like you said, it's an epic and you're doing it. So your challenges are this. You have, you know, one of the King's longest books that you're wanting to be faithful to. You're having to do it on network television. This book that is extremely hard R rated, you know, book yep. if it was in turn, you know, done like word for word. Uh, so you're having to push the envelope in terms of showing a, a world ending plague you know, on screen, on network television, you're having to cast all, you know, all these people, you're having to organize this, this epic shoot, which I can only imagine must've been like Lord of the Rings size of, you know, of, for, for a schedule. And you're ha- having to like creatively balance so many things going into this. Um, can you, you know, is that kind yeah. of an accurate portrayal of, of just kind of the, <laughs> the, 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 the torment you'd set up for yourself? It is, but it's also part of the job. You know, every right. movie is difficult. Um, and when they give you a movie and a budget, it it's not necessarily setting the budget to the movie that needs to be made, but trying to make the movie for the budget that you're given. And you're right. put into a bit of a box when the producers say, well, we can make it for this much. They haven't broken it down and really investigated that. But there's a couple of points of really good news that helped us a lot. A, the script was written by Stephen King. Mm. So all of the dramaturgy had been dealt with before we started the nuts and bolts of creation, you know, where you're putting a crew together and you're casting and all those things. So two, we were able to do things that network TV would not allow most people to do because, as they said, when Stephen King's name is in the title, they have an expectation that it's not going to be Walt Disney Presents the Stand. So you know that it's going to be intense, and that book was so famous, is so famous, still to this day, his most popular book ever. So those things were in our corner. But we were fighting the weather every day. You know, most of the shoot was in Utah, and we were based in Salt Lake City for a lot of it. But we were traveling constantly. We were often shooting two locations a day. And because of how you schedule, you schedule locations together, and then you schedule who the actors are when. So the actors come in for the locations and go out until their next location is up. So you don't have them there every day because you're on location and you're not in New York or Los Angeles and can't just make a call. Hey, we need you tomorrow. We got behind. And so we're going to do this then. You're constantly going through the tunnel. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no fucking tunnel. You know, it is (laughs) just, it's massive every day. You just have to shoot it a day at a time. And the director's job is to be the ringleader and to know what comes before each scene that you're shooting, what comes after each scene that you're shooting, and the perspective uh, of, of what those scenes are. 
actors will learn their parts. They're not necessarily required to know what comes before and after, although it's a big help. But it's such a big mechanical undertaking that it really has to be worked out first, and then you run up against other problems. But, um, you know, an actor will come in for maybe three weeks and then be gone for a month and come back for a week and, you know, hopscotch around like that. And then you have one of your primary actors that has three to five hours of makeup every day. Some nights, Ruby D would sleep in her makeup so she didn't have to go through the process the next day. And mm. she was a trooper. I mean, she was a great Broadway star, a great movie star, television, and and in the stand. Uh, I just don't think anybody could have done a better job than her and had the right. biggest heart and so much of an emotional connection. She breaks your heart in every scene she's in. And her death, that's the other thing you have to keep in mind is you're telling a story. You're not moving a train. And you have to be engaged with what each of these characters' relationship is to that story and to the audience because we are the avatar for the audience. The cast is the avatar for the audience. And they are representing the journey that the audience makes with them through story. And a story is not just events, but it's people. And it's an emotional journey from from one point to another. And that's what it's easy to lose track of is if you become a mechanical director, you're worrying about the train and moving it and all the moving parts. And it's easy to lose track of, wait, the whole reason this giant train is here is because in this scene, someone's heart is broken by someone else. And mm -hmm. that's the important thing. And so, yeah, something of this size, especially uh, because I'd never made anything of any scope before this, you know, Critters 2 is big for a Critters movie, but it's, it's, uh, it pales in comparison to the needs of, of what the stand had. And you've got all these different personalities. Every actor works in a different way from one another, and you figure out how best to accommodate them and their needs and their requirements so that you can encourage the best performance by everyone in the cast and crew as it relates to the giant train that's being pulled. Hmm. So that's a long answer to your question. No, it's great. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about the casting real quick before we move on. Sure. Um, because... I mean, you mentioned Ruby D. Like when I read, you know, I've reread The Stand, I think twice now since last time I watched the miniseries. And I can't, I, you know, I, I liked Whoopi in the role, role you know, in the news we show. Almost you know, had, I, we almost had Whoopi in ours. I'd heard, yeah. Yeah. But well, like Ruby D's who I see when I read it now. Like that's just who's in my mind now. And for, I think forever will be when I reread re the text. Yeah. I mean, she was amazing. She was 65 when she did it, which is how old Ruby was, uh, when, how old um, Whoopi was when she did the uh, mm. the remake. But And Whoopi was on the podcast, my podcast, and we talked about this whole thing together. But, uh, but the casting process was an amazing one. You know, the, originally ABC said to us, well, King is the star, so you don't have to worry about movie star names. Then they started to second-guess themselves. And, you know, mm. what about the Brat Pack? What about Molly Ringwald and, and uh, mm. Rob Lowe? And so then it was, okay. Well, Molly Ringwald had done a movie, a TV movie with 
my friend Tom McLaughlin, and she was great in it. And so, okay, she came in, we met, everything went well. And uh, so that went forward. And I know she is a problem that a lot of people have with it because she seems like a brat packer <laughs> rather than than our friend Goldsmith. But um, mm. Rob Lowe is a huge Stephen King fan, a huge Stephen King fan and is deaf in one ear. And he said, well, first they put him up to play Larry Underwood, the singer. And I said, let's go against type. Let's make him, you know, the the deaf mute. And so he loved that idea. And he said, I'm deaf in one ear. How about I put a bug that makes noise in my other ear so I really can't do it? And I said, well, uh, acting is really what we're doing here. And if you can't hear the direction and the other actors, that might not be <laughs> the best idea. <laughs> So, uh, so he didn't, but he was very committed to it and very good. And then Gary Sinise was a guy who had just done Of Mice and Men. And I went and saw him in a theater on Hollywood Boulevard and saw the movie, which he directed uh, and he played George in. And he was, he was Gary Cooper. And that's what I was looking for. What King and I were looking for was a, a man of the assault of the earth guy like Gary Cooper was in the 1940s and 50s. Yeah, and it was it was really great. But the first guy to read for us for any role was Matt Frewer. And he huh. came in and read the scene where he meets Flag and Flag holds up the cigarette lighter and shows him the flame and, and he professes my life for you. Well, mm -hmm. just anybody reading it could have just said, Oh, this is the lunatic, he's the crazy guy. And Matt, of course, has played plenty of crazy guys. Uh, but he's also a brilliant, trained actor. He went to the Royal Shakespeare. I, I, no, he went to RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in England. And he played it with pathos. He was seeing that cigarette. If you remember the scene from the show, he's in tears, devoting his life and just he's meeting his idol and we were all just, oh my God. And we hired him in the room. The very first actor to read the very first role. Stephen King was there. I was there. Uh, Lynn Kressel, our casting director, was there. And we all looked at each other and went, oh my God, this ain't Dr. Doctor. <laughs> this, ain't, this ain't Max Headroom. Yeah. Your first hire. You must have been like, you this is going to be easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there are 126 speaking parts in it. So uh, Yeah, yeah. We just need to well, replicate this 125 more times, and we yeah. are golden. Well, we're we're big, big fans of Miguel Ferrer here on the, oh, on the show, god. and oh god, love Ferrer, yeah. such a great. Yeah, guy. And, uh, did you know he did yeah. the voice of Jack Torrance's dad in The Shining? No, I he didn't know. Voice over the CB radio telling him he's been a right. boy. That's Miguel. Holy shit! That's yeah. What a incredible character actor that guy was he one of the reasons we love great. the night flyer so much is that he gets to take the lead in that one you don't it's again so you don't often get pure uncut ferrer like that usually you're getting <laughs> you know bits and pieces of ferrer there's uh, another really good movie that he stars in a little movie called the harvest that uh he had made hmm. with his with his they met and got married on that movie but um it's a really good little thriller i don't think i've I seen that one yeah, I, I don't think I've seen that one either. Track it down. It's great. <clears throat> Will do.
Always happy to watch some more for rare. Is he the lead in it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's a really dark thriller. It's really good. In fact, I just right. oh, I'm writing inspired it myself to write it, you know, re- to watch it because I haven't seen it. In many years. Yeah. <laughs> good. The, uh, the next one we should probably talk about is Desperation. Desperation mm-hmm. is one of the most requested titles we've gotten for our, our from our listeners to do really? on the show. Oh yeah. yeah. All the all the goddamn time we hear about desperation. I just we have watched not, it on its anniversary. Just a couple of days ago was the 15th anniversary of its uh, I saw that, yeah. Debut. And just coincidentally, my wife and I watched it and we hadn't seen it in many years. And it was like such so, so great to revisit it. It was also uh, probably the second most difficult to make uh, other than the stand because of all the outdoor shooting and all of, yeah. all of that. But, and it had an ensemble cast as well, but uh, that was a lot. And the main fun. villain who's falling apart throughout the whole thing. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> it, it definitely loses a little steam when you lose Ron Perlman, when you lose yeah. Tragian. Um, so I missed him for the rest of the movie, but there's a lot of stuff going on in that movie. Yeah, there is. I'm curious if there was ever a conversation about, well, hey, maybe if this one does really well, we'll do the regulators and bring the same cast back. That would have been kind of unique. There never was, and that's a question I often get asked, but in a way I'm kind of glad because I think Desperation is a much more cinematic book. Uh, The Mm. Regulators is kind of esoteric and at times hard to follow, but Desperation feels much more emotional and human. And uh, I think of the two, and they were released together, actually shrink-wrapped together when they both first came out yeah. with those right. the great artwork on the cover. Of the both. matching covers. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, really that, great. Yeah, that connected to each other if you, if you held them up to each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're really great. Uh, and I, I'm just glad that we made Desperation because that was the one that really resonated more with me. It's definitely the more fun one too. Definitely. Although well, you know, you they, know re- it, it, they released it, regulators under Bachman's name and it reads more like Bachman than King. It does. You know? It does. But uh, it, it's interesting. You know, King is a believer. He's not religious, but he does believe. And being a member of AA kind of requires a belief in a higher power. Mm-hmm. I am not. I think if there's a, a weak point to desperation, um, it is that the boy is awfully preachy and sometimes mm. you just want to smack him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, not as much as it was, uh, you know, I, I cut a little bit of that out before we started shooting, but you know, that's what the story is about. It's about belief and faith and an ultimate good and an ultimate evil. But, uh, it, it definitely, gets overwhelmed by that at times as, as I watched it for the first time in years and saw it through a little more clearly. I've never had the opportunity to interview, uh, Ron Perlman. Uh, Uh, he's great. Yeah. But, um, one time I was at, uh, it was during South by Southwest and I came out of a screening, the Alamo Ritz on sixth, you know, so it's, it's on an already busy street during, South by Southwest. So it's like the, the street itself is flooded with people. Yeah. I've been I there. came out. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so I come out of that screening and walk out of the theater onto sixth. And there's like, you can see like a circle has formed 
in this mass of people. And I was like, oh, shit, is there a fight going on? What is this now? There, you know, no one's really screaming or anything like there would be during a, a brawl. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out it was just Ron Perlman standing there. <laughs> and he was just kind of standing in the middle of the street with his hands on his hips. And, you know, like he had a couple of people with him. But like there, there was literally just a crowd of people just standing there looking at Ron Perlman. He's a and great guy and he's so funny. <laughs> what I discovered in that moment is he does have like an aura about him that mm-hmm. is larger than life. And you could literally see that like playing out right in front of your face with that crowd surrounding him like that. You know, I that's rarely. Why, that's why we hired him for Kali. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is he just a like force to be reckoned with on set? Like in a fun Com- way. Completely. Yeah, He is yeah. a blast to work with. We had so much fun and it was his favorite role ever at the time. He said, this role Stephen wrote is a gift. Uh, it's my favorite thing I've ever done. I thank you so much for having me do this. And he just ran with it. He was fantastic. He had, obviously, he has no trouble with makeup effects after Hellboy yeah. and everything, everything else he's done. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast, yeah. Yeah. So he's had a lifetime of that stuff. But he made it so human and so great. And, and he's a really great, funny guy. He does a great Sinatra impression too, but he loves his stogies, you know, his cigars. And, uh, you know, he and Toby are my two cigar buddies, but I'm not, (laughs) I don't smoke them, but they're my two buddies that do, uh, did. And really he had a great time and you can see it. You can see it in the movie. Oh yeah. I get that from, I mean, not to say that it's not special in desperation, but I get that virtually every time I watch a Perlman performance. Absolutely. He's just, you know, he's so in love with, you can tell it's just, he's like giddy, like a kid to be on whatever set that he's on, you know? This was operatic, so he really had the best time. Oh, he's chewing that scenery up, boy. (laughs) And he, he uses every excuse to do that. That's what I love about Perlman is that he'll, he'll do... Like the, the word, you know, I mean, I'm going to name names here, but you like, he'll do a Uva Bowl movie and knowing full well what it is, but you know what? He's going to bring it and he's going to have fun with it. And that's just what he does. And then he'll show up in something very serious. Like Enemy at the Gates is a prime example. I always yeah. think about with yeah. him is that, you know, he shows up for, a, you know, a hot minute in that he, and he elevates the movie for, you know, his 20 or 15, 20 minutes that that character's in it. And and, you know, then he he exits in the movie, you know, it deflates a little bit. That's just what he does. He brings everything up. <laughs> God damn it. He ruined it by deflating my movie by leaving it early. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Right in the middle of it. What yeah. were you thinking? Bastard. We're going we're gonna to have to talk to King about that. Can't do that again. No. no. Holly <laughs> Need too. Pearlman the, the whole time. One, you can do the girl who loved Tom Gordon and he'll play the girl this time. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. The- they're, uh, Romero, they're doing that as a movie now, right? They like, are. I'm curious if, uh, it was going to be Romero for years. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. yeah, I'm very curious to see what how. That I think turns that they out. even advertised that on like the the paperback or something, like soon to be a, a motion picture from George A. Romero or something. Yep. Yeah. I remember there being a, a push, and he almost made the stand as well for a long time. He for and years and King yeah. were developing. But yeah, yeah, that would have been fascinating. I have no idea what the hell that could have even yeah. even looked like in. In the I, time they were trying to make it. I have no idea. I never saw those scripts. But uh, Rospo Pallenberg, who wrote Exorcist 2, among other things, uh, wrote a script for ah. the stand feature. 
Did you hear about any of the casting? Because I, I read King once talked about how they had discussed Robert Duvall playing Randall Flagg, and I couldn't really shake that image after for years. That. Like that's who they wanted, yeah. And but right. by the time we got around to making it, he was a little old for that part. But what's interesting, <laughs> what's interesting is in the stand, everybody in the book is ten years younger than everybody in the in the movie, <laughs> right? And it, and it seems right, but because. Steve was so young when he wrote the book, that's the age he imagined everybody else to be. And later doing the screenplay, uh, you know, 15 whatever years later, um, all of those characters matured a bit. They ripened. You you mentioned Matt Frew earlier, and he also appeared in Bag of Bones. Yep. And uh, in Desperation. mm -hmm. And And um, one more man, too. But we'll we'll ignore that one. Well, (laughs) we don't need to. You know, we <laughs> yeah. don't need to make eye contact with that one right now. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about Bag of Bones. Like, yeah. um, was this just another thing where, you know, like how did how did that project come about? I guess is what I'm we, asking. Uh, my producer on Desperation, uh, Mark Sennett, had and I had been trying to get it going as a feature film for years. And mm-hmm. you wouldn't believe that it was really hard to get some Stephen King projects off the ground. Desperation took like eight years. And Bag of Bones took uh, six, I think. And ended up, <laughs> both of them were originally intended to be feature films and ended up as television movies. Bag of Bones was one of my favorite King stories. And we finally got it together. We took it to ABC when we decided we couldn't get it set up as a feature. And ABC was on the fence about it. And so we went to A&E and A&E got really excited to be in the Stephen King business. So that deal was made. King was busy working on other projects. And so I brought in a young writer I had met named Matt Vane. And he's a huge King fan. And we talked a lot about it. And uh, I think he really did a, a great version of the screenplay. We had to clear clear some things up. It's the timing and everything behind the ghost story itself is kind of confusing. So we kind of took a page out of uh, Peter Straub's ghost story in in how the revenge of the ghosts was being handled because we had to clear up dates, how long ago the singer was killed and how it could play and how old the people were afterwards, the William Showert character, you know, he was 90 when he, he shot the movie with us. I think it was the last thing he did, but I always loved it. And I loved being able to shoot the period stuff in the 1920s, you know, the barn performances, the, the fair dark Mm -hmm. or Lake fair was so much fun and casting Pierce Brosnan, you know, that's a movie star. And he had been a TV star who became a big movie star. And he had not done television in a long time. And so he read it. The money was right. The timing was right. And we were able to make that happen. And I think one of the reasons it plays so well is because Pierce is so great. Annabeth Gish is great as his wife. And she was in Desperation as well, as well Mm -hmm. in uh, Nightmare Cinema, in my segment of Nightmare Cinema. And, uh, you know, Melissa George was fantastic. Mm. Um, You know, it was really a, a wonderful 
opportunity to work with a really great cast. And although it was a big hit for uh, A&E, it was their highest rated dramatic movie ever, that was still a cable channel. And the numbers are not the same as a big hit for network TV. So there are a lot of people who never saw it. And the film was made so quickly. Um, We made it in Halifax, Nova Scotia and shot it on location there, which is very much like Maine, where it takes place. Uh, It looks just like Maine. So it's a very convincing place to set it. And uh, had a really good cast and crew. It was finished. We, from the day we wrapped to the day it aired was only seven weeks. So all of the editing, all the visual effects, all of the music, all of the sound editing, all of that stuff had to be done in seven weeks, which is impossible. Jesus did it. Good Lord. And it turned out, you know, I'm very proud of that. And it's one that not that many people have seen. That and Desperation both are really kind of the underseen TV things that we've did, done together. While you were filming, uh, you ever uh, talked to Brazen about some Lawnmower Man shit? <laughs> bring that up? That would be like my first question out of my mouth would be like, I want to know everything about the Lawnmower Man set. <laughs> I wanted to have a great relationship with the actor <laughs> starring in my movie. And I don't think that starting with Lawnmower Man would be the place to begin. <laughs> Lawnmower Man but was a big hit. Tell me about though. the earring, dude. Yeah, Lawnmower Man was a big hit, though. You know, that was. It was a hit. Forget. But it was a quiet hit. It was a hit that had didn't have much respect in its day. So, so no, I wouldn't we, be. I wouldn't we didn't be able talk to stop about myself. that. We talked about The Matador, which is my favorite. <laughs> my favorite Pierce Brosnan movie is The Matador. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it, if your listeners haven't seen it, it's amazing. It's and it's my favorite of his performances, and it it showed me what he was capable of because I'd mostly mm-hmm. seen him as James Bond. You know, yeah. which is not the most demanding. Uh, in terms of dramatic depth, but I'd seen other things he'd done and, and Matador showed me what an amazing sense of humor he had and a very straight face sense of humor. But also he had gone through personal tragedy. He had lost a wife and he loses his wife in bag of bones. And that was a very ticklish subject, but Pierce is a guy who doesn't need much direction and doesn't really want it unless there's any kind of question. And you adapt yourself to an actor's wants and needs immediately, or else you don't have a successful relationship with him. <laughs> and, and he was just great. I knew that I didn't need to talk to him about the, the scenes uh, after the death of his wife. And, and you feel the raw pain that he experienced when we were shooting that. It was so genuine because that was real. But yeah, yeah that, that's one of my favorites. And uh, again, not one that is as widely seen as some of the others. Is it streaming anywhere right now? I don't know. I don't know. It was done for A&E, so it, it may or may not be on their website or, or on their uh, app. Um, I, I just found out that Desperation is streaming on demand on Apple uh, Apple movies, and so I assume hmm. it's on the other ones too. But I don't know about Bag of Bones. Interesting. And I got to get on Apple. Yeah, <laughs> desperations on there. Lisey's story's coming out. I need to get yeah. on. Tr- I still need to catch up with Ted Lasso. 
for the love of God. Ted Lasso. Yeah, yeah. I've never, yeah. I've never seen it. Yeah. I've heard nothing but good things. People yeah. like it's to a point now where people yell at you if you haven't seen it, you <laughs> yeah. know? So I'm it's trying like, not to yell at you both right now, but it, it's a, it's a wonderful show. You should watch it, but it's about sports, right? <laughs> it, it's, I'm told that well, doesn't matter. Okay. It's like, that's it's like sort really, of the backdrop. Yeah. You know, they always, it's, it's about right. the coach. Whenever somebody says, Oh, a put, uh, you know, uh, what are, uh, I don't know what football movies they say, Oh, it's not any given. You don't, have to, you don't have to love football. And I almost always realize, yeah, you kind of do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just put it this way. This is it. It would be like saying, I'm not going to watch bad news bears. Cause it's about baseball and I don't okay. like baseball. You won your so, point. It's, yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, we're, we're running very long. We've kept you for an hour and a half now, but before I let you go, I'd like to touch on one of the most odd pairings that, that, Ah. uh, you and King have, and that's, uh, with Michael Jackson's ghosts. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. One, it's a bizarre project, you know, uh, from, from the get go, the fact that, you know, Michael Jackson was a big, supposedly, supposedly a big King fan wanted to make a follow up to thriller, you know, wanted something to to top thrillers the way I keep hearing it well, being described. He always um, wanted and to like, top if we're gonna... everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, like, and I knew that that uh, originally you were supposed to direct it, and um, uh, Stan Winston ended up directing it. But can you tell me a little bit about like what that project was when yeah. you were uh, like initially involved it's, with it? It's much more complicated than that. Uh, I did direct. <laughs> I did direct it for two weeks. We never got to the music. Oh Jesus! Number, but um, no shit. You know the the stuff outside with the torches and the like. Uh, although they redid some of it because they changed the cast. I had shot a lot of that. I had been shooting. Uh, well, originally it was going to be uh, a song for the end title of Adam's Family Values, the sequel to Adam's Family. Hmm. So. King had just worked with me and he'd been talking with Michael and they'd worked out this, he'd written the script called, is this scary? So he recommended me to do the video and I met with Michael and we hit it off and it was, it was great. Uh, you know, he was an amazing, obviously creative beyond belief, talented beyond belief, incredibly generous and kind guy. And so we ended up and a monster kid, right? And he was he was su- super nerdy about Since about American uh, Werewolf. Genre. Before that, not so much. You know, he became a big horror movie fan with American Werewolf. That kind of was was a touch point for him. But yeah, he wanted to do what he said to King was, "I want to do the scariest short film ever made." Well, this was never going to be that. but it was going to be for Adam's family values. So we're shooting for two weeks and on Michael time, it's not like, um, earth time. It's very elastic. It's like a dolly painting of a clock. (laughs) You know, when he's ready is when you do it. So we, we were shooting for two entire weeks and we still had not gotten to the musical number yet, just because everything takes a long time in, in Michael's world. But it was great. Everything was so much fun. And I was working with, you know, Russell Carpenter, who had done right. Critters 2 with me. Well, no, Mikhail Solomon first, who was a huge uh, cinematographer who'd done a lot of work with Steven Spielberg before he became a director himself. Um, I brought in my my uh, production designer from Cycle 4, Michael Hannon, built these big, beautiful sets. And then it shut down when the first 
scandal happened, a scandal that none of us believed. Knowing Michael, it just didn't seem he was capable of. Who knows? You know, my experience was that I can't imagine him having participated in anything like that, but only those who were involved know about that. But it shut Mm -hmm. down. And it shut down for like three years. And there was a time when all of the sets were shipped to Japan to shoot it in Japan because Michael had left the country. So my producer went, the sets went, all that stuff happened, and then it didn't happen. So for three years, nothing happened. And then Michael started calling me. It's going to be great. We can do it. It's beautiful. We're going to do something really special. And it's like... I know. Holy shit, you're good at that. <laughs> <laughs> but but I said, Michael, I've got to do The Shining. And it's not a movable feast. We have a start date. We're locked into it. I'm in pre-production. So I recommended that Stan Winston, who was one of Michael's best friends and was a really good director who, you know, Pumpkinhead was a terrific movie and beautifully stylish and all. They were good friends and Stan was doing all of the effects on, on what eventually became Michael Jackson's ghosts. So three years after what we shot had been completed, they got back together and Stan Winston directed it. I did a, a lot of rewriting on the script before uh, we we shot it because King was on to other projects. Michael wanted different things, and it kept growing and growing and growing. And then after I left to do The Shining, Stan took over, and it became entirely financed by Michael. And it just kept growing, and it became this thirty five minute extravaganza that it's kind of nuts. I'm curious what How- the original version of yeah you know, I know the original version of the script was is it scary as you just said yeah yeah. Um, in in that form, what was the plot? It was just smaller. It was the same plot, but he did not play all the different characters in the Rick Baker makeups. He just played one character. All these angry parents came in because Michael was weird and it was terrible to be weird. And so they're in his castle, his Frankenstein's castle, and it goes into that big musical number. Now there are two or three of them, and it's 35 minutes long, but it was going to just be a 15-minute thing. If you go on YouTube, I found that somehow my cut of everything that was done before the musical number, you can find it on YouTube under Michael Jackson, Is This Scary? And you can see what we did before it became what it became interesting but it's just the beginning of what our film was going to be god damn we just we're working on a thing for michael jackson's ghost right now and oh, wow. uh it's already recorded but cool. i wish we had known that before we recorded the episode <laughs> uh i'm gonna need you to go back in time by about four weeks uh yeah. mick and uh <laughs> give us that advice then so oh, okay well, we can incorporate what, that that's into what thing is for <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, um, Eric, have we kept this man long enough? Oh, man. Like, I mean, Mick, I can sit and talk. And this is us just bullshitting about your career. Like, you're also really fun to just talk about movies in general with and oh, genre right. in general with. And I could I could I could do that for for hours. But I know that you have much better things to do. So I think we'll we'll let you go from here. All right. Great. Well, it's been a lot of fun, Scott, Eric. Thank you for, yes. uh, for a good time. And uh, you're, a, you're a legend within the uh <laughs> The King filmography. So in we, my own we, mind, yeah. 
Well, no, you really are, and we and and we respect you a lot, and and thank you for coming on and being a part uh, of this. I appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Many thanks to Mick Garris for joining us. It was about damn time, and I couldn't have been happier to to finally uh, pick his brain about uh, not only Stephen King, but like you know, as you probably grasped from the show, like I'm I'm a big fan of what he did, you know, with Psycho Four, and of course, I kind of grew up a little bit in that Hocus Pocus era, so. It was good to, you know, kind of talk to somebody who's been on the ground, you know, during during the last what four or five decades of mm-hmm. uh, of horror as we know it. Yeah. I didn't want to say it on the air. I've never seen Hocus Pocus. My wife watches it incessantly. I think she watches it probably two or three times a year. But I would specifically say, around Halloween, but also of course. just randomly. It's a good one to get you in the mood for Halloween because it's like set in Salem, and you know, yes, it's Kitty. It's Definitely not an adult scary movie, but uh, it's it's definitely kind of got that Halloween charm feel. Yeah, I, I maybe yeah. give it a shot this this Halloween. Maybe maybe you'll. Uh, I don't know, man. I just I I got a lot going on this Halloween. I think you're right. I'm watching no my room hair. for Kathy and Jimmy gotta... in in your Halloween plans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I'll I'll probably see it eventually. It's just it's one of those things I put off for so long that I'm I'm not really. Not super motivated to catch up with it, but uh, you are probably right. Maybe it'll maybe it will delight me almost as much as uh, speaking with Mick Garris delighted me. What a what a gentleman and a scholar, lovely guy. And you know, we also we can't stress enough. We've mentioned it multiple times during the show, uh, but definitely tune into his podcast, Postmortem with Mick Garris. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gets a ridiculously good guests because, as we mentioned in the the show. You know, he's kind of the glue that holds the horror filmmaking community together. He knows everybody and uh, everybody loves him. And after listening to that conversation, you can understand why he's just the nicest dude to talk to, knows his shit, is a lovely man, lovely, lovely man all around. And he has an amazing head of hair. I wonder if he'll help me get Bill Malone on the show just so I can talk to him about House on Haunted Hill. I mean, we'll also have to talk about some Stephen King shit, but, uh, you know, oh, do I love House on Haunted Hill? (laughs) <laughs> well, the butter butter up that Mick Garris. No, Maybe he'll help I'll, you out. I'm getting my margarine out as we speak. <laughs> so next week is a fun one. We are returning to the world of thinner. Uh, I'm not going to do the voice because we uh, we do that. Oh, you you broke it. I had to but do it. That that might that might By happen law. a couple of times next week as well. It, you yes. just can't. I mean, there's there's no way to discuss that movie and or book without referencing that that uh, old gentleman with the uh, the sore on his face just say it you want to get it out of your system thin <laughs> see it feels good yeah it does it, it's uh it's like meditation this is my alm you'll just see somebody <laughs> somebody will find me like meditating and i'm just going to be repeating thin over and over again <laughs> that's what i've been doing for my new diet we weren't sure we were going to come back to this title <laughs> This quickly, matter of fact, we'd probably bet that we weren't going to, but uh, we had a very interesting guest. He's an up-and-coming genre filmmaker who has a uh, substantial genre movie coming out very soon that we've seen, we love, and uh, he also happens to be a listener of the show, and he really wanted to talk about Thinner. And uh, so... Thinner. Thinner. And we did it again. So we have Thinner Mm -hmm. with... A nice mystery guest who we'll reveal, as always, on our Twitter this Monday. Mm-hmm. And that's at KingCast19, if you're not already following us. And uh, what about our Patreon this Friday? What's happening on our Patreon this Friday, Scott? 
Well, things are getting conceptual on the Patreon this Friday. Those of you who subscribe to the Patreon and some of you who listen to this episode when it eventually made its way to the main feed will remember a previous guest named Lindsay Travis, who is a lawyer from Canada. They have laws up there and crimes. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. But um, she came on and defended uh, Andy Dufresne from the perspective of his actual defense lawyer, were, were she to have been his counsel in that case. Um, and she just knocked it out of the park and, and kicked our asses up, down, left and right, answered all our annoying questions about being a lawyer. And we've been sort of fishing around for further ideas that we could do with her on the show using her legal expertise that might pertain to the world of Stephen King. And eventually uh, we landed on a pretty good idea. The gist of it is this. Wendy Torrance, Danny Torrance, has survived the events of The Shining and are now claiming damages against the owner of the Overlook Hotel. This is our own official, unofficial sequel to uh, The Shining. It's no Dr. Sleep, but it'll do. They take the Overlook to court. Lindsay will be representing Wendy Torrance, Danny Torrance, the surviving members of the Torrance family, in front of Judge Eric Vespi in the King Court, uh, whereas I will be representing the Overlook Hotel and uh, doing everything in my power to not pay these damages to the surviving Torrances. That about covers it, right? <laughs> That's it. And yeah. I am not a lawyer. I want to be very clear on that up front. Uh, I have no legal expertise whatsoever. So you're going to hear me fully playing the role of a uh, <laughs> douchebag hotel magnet in this episode. Yep. No, think of it like uh, an episode of the People's Court, except it's all about you know, it's all about it's all with people who one don't know what they're doing, with the exception of Lindsay, uh, who has to try mm -hmm. to carry us through this. Um, me pretending to be a judge and uh, Scott pretending that he knows anything about uh, defending himself. It is. <laughs> I don't know how to exp how to describe it other than we ultimately had a lot of fun doing it. And uh, I hope you guys like it. Yes. And if it if it proves popular, uh, the King Court might be a regular feature on this show. It's harder to describe than it is to just listen to it. So just just mm -hmm. f fucking sign up for the Patreon and listen to it. You're going to like it. Yep. And to do that, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Kingcast. And, you know, give us a little little scratch and you'll get a ton in return. We have so many banked bonus episodes and you get access to all of them on day one. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you like the show, you want more of it. Uh, there's 40 plus, if not more episodes, just waiting to be heard. Oh, definitely more than that, including 10 commentary tracks. And there's yeah. just a treasure trove of, I, I hate the word content, but there's a treasure trove of content just waiting behind that very small paywall. And also, um, while we're asking favors of our listeners, uh, please head over to iTunes and hit us with one of those five-star ratings. Tell us how much you love the show, who some of your favorite guests are, all of that. We'd love to hear from you. And also, we love five stars. So pretty good deal on both ends. You we know, definitely love five stars more than four stars and definitely one more than stars. three stars. Yeah. yeah. One stars. We're not even talking to you folks. <laughs> You're uh, out of the family. Out of the will. So we'll see you folks in the main feed next week with Thinner, and we will see our Patreon folks this Friday for the Torrance's V Overlook. See you guys then. Adios, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done. 
by yours truly. 